Good afternoon, brothers. It's my privilege to be able to open God's Word with you uh, this afternoon. Our text is found in the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians. We'll be reading from verses 9 to 11, but our uh, particular focus this afternoon will be on verse 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, reading from verses 9 to 11. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word tells us that the unfolding of your words gives light and understanding to the simple. We confess that in so many ways we are simple people. We understand not your greatness nor your glory as we ought. So we ask that your spirit would help us today to open our eyes afresh, that we would see more of your glory, more of your beauty, that we would have greater spiritual understanding, that you would shed abroad the light of Christ in our hearts unto our good and unto your glory. We ask, we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Now, I was reflecting recently to my fiance just how, in a sense, odd our Western wedding ceremonies are. Uh, this fact is often uh, forgotten by us, and we would look at maybe another culture, uh, a tea ceremony perhaps, and think, oh, that's different. But we forget that our own traditions are filled with all sorts of interesting symbols and ceremonies. Um, a woman buys the most expensive dress she'll ever buy it's white. She wears it only once. There's a parade of people that includes little girls strewing dead botanical petals on the ground. There's an exchange of jewelry that has to go on the exact right finger. I mean, the left finger, the ring finger. And all this, um, we lose at times the significance of the symbolism in our normal traditions. But these Traditions that have developed over time, they have immense value. They have immense symbolism behind them. The dress denoting the purity of the bride. The giving away from the father, that transfer of authority to a new family. Uh, the exchange of rings as tokens of love and faithfulness. Deeply beautiful concepts. Indeed, symbols often convey realities, these invisible realities in powerful ways. And God, in the same way, he gave his people symbols, symbols conducted in ceremonies to try to convey to them spiritual realities. Uh, in the Old Testament, we actually call this the ceremonial law. Uh, these symbols and ceremonies conveyed many different things to God's people, but particularly, one of the things to be conveyed was that of holiness. This idea of holiness is a great theme in the Old Testament. And everything that was meant for God's ministry was to be marked by holiness. 
from the sacrificial altar all the way down to the utensils. Everything was marked by holiness, and especially so for those priests, the priests that were called out from the people to minister unto God were to be holy. And to show and symbolize this holiness, uh, there was a ceremony for these priests that had three particular elements. One of them was that the priests had to be washed in a basin of water outside the tabernacle. They had to be clothed in holy particular garments, and they had to be anointed with holy oil, all symbolizing their setting apartness from the people to minister unto God. They had to be washed, consecrated, and clothed. And I trust the significance of this picture is not lost on you when we consider our text today, when we will look at how believers in Christ have been washed, sanctified, and justified. Uh, This is a picture. These three elements provide us a picture of holiness. And indeed, holiness is our theme today. I want to wrap this text up under the banner of holiness. And I'm doing this because I believe that as Puritan Anthony Burgess says, uh, holiness, it's not a particular grace like these three are. It's not a particular healing of some disease in the soul, but it is a universal medicine applied to all diseases of the soul. So I want us to see our soul soars today, to see the cleansing that Christ then brings and the way we are to live as a result. Our big idea today is that we who were once unholy have been made holy in Christ by the Spirit that we might be holy in all our conduct. We were once unholy, but have been made holy that we might be holy. And these are our three simple points for today. Once unholy, made holy to be holy. Now our passage comes in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And 1 Corinthians can, you could think of it as being divided into kind of two primary halves. The first half, Paul is um, rebuking particular sins in the congregation, things like division, dissensions, sexual immorality, lawsuits believers are having with each other, and calling out certain individuals in the church. And then from ver- chapter 7 to the end, he seems to be answering more of their questions that they've asked to him uh, on particular matters, giving advice and recommendations. Our text comes at the end Uh, of the first section, halfway through chapter 6. And in chapter 5, he's gone really deep into a case of sexual immorality in the church that was grievous, and there was discipline going to be conducted. And in chapter 6, he's also going very deeply into this issue of taking each other to court, and how egregious he says this is. And I might be speculating a bit on the reasoning for the placement of our text here, but it seems to me as if the congregation might be tempted to, as they're reading this letter, see Paul rebuking these few particular people involved in these sins, and they might have been tempted to become sort of self-righteous or smug. Yeah, those people, they're really in it. They're really struggling. But it's as if he comes in verse 9, and lists these 10 types of sinners, 10 types of wickednesses that do not inherit the kingdom of heaven. 
And it's almost as if to remind everyone, hey, it's not just these particular brothers, but we were all once in the same boat. We were all once unholy. And this is where our text begins in verse 11. Paul lists these 10 types of wickedness and then says, and such were some of you. You who would be tempted to condemn your brethren in self-righteousness, remember yourselves. Look at where you've come from. You too were once mired in sin, unfit for the kingdom of God. So look back at your sin and remember, sinners do not inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul in verse 9 uses strong language. He says, be not deceived. Why would he say that? Unless people are deceived. And so often, people are deceived into thinking that they're good enough to make it into heaven, that their good works can merit them favor with God, that they're not as bad as other sinners. And maybe you're here today and you might even think something similar. Uh, You might think, well, I haven't taken part in really any of these sins Paul mentions. I can understand that people like fornicators and uh, um, adulterers, thieves, all these people I can see deserving God's punishment, but I'm not that bad. I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. And it is true that Paul says, such were some of you. Indeed, not every member in the congregation had committed each one of these sins in that particular form. Indeed, some would have been caught in a particular one, others another. But I think it's important for us to remember that sin is not just in these outward manifestations, but it comes from roots in our heart. And I think we all have the roots of each of these sins in our hearts. Just a couple examples. Paul mentions fornicators, but this, I believe, condemns all of us who have ever harbored sexual lust in our eyes, our mind, or in our heart. He mentions idolaters, which would condemn all of us who've ever valued the things of this world over the things of God, who haven't sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Drunkards aren't just those who abuse and overindulge in alcohol, but it includes all immoderate use of the world's goods, whether we're oversleeping, overeating, overentertaining ourselves. Now, Fred, do you not see we're all condemned? We're all in the same pit of sin to begin with. None of us um, has ever for a moment been free from sin. And aside from these particular breaches of God's commandments that we see, we can't forget that none of us has ever loved the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. No, not for one moment. So let's not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if you're here today and you're feeling the weight of that, the weight of the burden of unrighteousness, I want you to see today that God's word shows us how salvation is in Christ alone and in the washing, sanctification, and justification that he brings. So be sure to listen in closely as we cover these in our next point. But if you're a believer, I want you to take from this section that such were some of you, the reminder of the sins of the past, what Christ has saved us from, We can't ever forget that. That was the error always of Old Testament Israel, forgetting God's redemption of them. 
So let's beware of that pharisaical pride that would come upon us and thank the Lord that we are not such as other men are, sinners. No, we're all once unholy and still do have sin remaining in our members. But let's also remember our sin, that we may love Christ better. You remember that woman who came to Christ and worshiped him at his feet. And Jesus used this illustration to say that the one who's been forgiven much will love much. So when we consider our sins, and not just our sin in general, but our sins in particular, we learn to love Christ better. You could say that the deeper you swim in the depths of your sin, the higher you will soar in your love to the Lord. We need to remember what we were before Christ saved us, what we could have become had he not saved us, what we still are in our sinful flesh, and also consider what we still could be if God for a second removed his gracious hand from us. And so we thank God for his great grace, not just that grace that saved us, but that grace that sustains us in our walk. We were once unholy, but God has provided a way for us to be made holy in Christ. And the glories of that we want to hope to open at least a crack in our next point, where we see that though we were once unholy, we have been made holy. Our text continues, such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We see here that the triune God has made his people holy, washing, sanctifying, justifying them in Christ by the Spirit. And what we have in this verse, we see it's, uh, we have a number of these in the New Testament, but this is one of those beautiful hinge verses, kind of like we see in Ephesians 2, um, that Martin Lloyd-Jones so famously preached that sermon, but God. Here we see a contrast from wickedness, and such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified. There's this wonderful turning point that we see in this text, because conversion is truly, it's the difference from death and life, darkness and light. The beauty we see in each of these three aspects of our redemption, our washing, sanctification, justification, the beauty of these graces is intensified against the darkness of our sin, just as the stars shine brightest against the backdrop of the night sky. Uh, before we look at each of these three terms in particular, I just want to make a couple of comments on sort of the interpretation and exegesis of this text that I think will help us. Uh, the first thing I want to mention is that before each of these three words, the authorized version uses uh, that term are. Ye are washed, are sanctified, which is a present tense in our English rendering. But um, the way the verb is in the original language, it could just as easily be translated were. You were washed, were sanctified. Because uh, the idea actually carries a past and a present uh, context. More uh, likely, we could have said you have been washed, you have been sanctified. Because what we're seeing here is that it is a past action, but it has a present reality. So the present tense there is communicating to us that this is something that was accomplished in the past, but still remains in the future. The effects continue. So you were washed and are still clean. 
you were sanctified and are still set apart. Because uh, you see, every grace of Christ applied to the believer affects a permanent change. If you've been justified in Christ, you can never be unjustified. Those regenerated will never be degenerated. Because God doesn't rest our salvation on the weakness of our faith, but on the strength of Christ's finished work. The second point I want to bring up with our text is that those last two clauses, that it was in the name of Christ and by the Spirit, those apply to each of all three terms. So you could say you've been washed in the name of Christ by the Spirit, you've been sanctified in the name of Christ by the Spirit, you've been justified in the name of Christ and by the Spirit. And I think an interesting thing to bring out here is that this actually has a beautiful Trinitarian flavor to it. Uh, We see the Son, we see the Spirit, but notice it's the Spirit of God the spirit that proceeds from the Father and the Son. And we know that the Son is the Son who's begotten of the Father. Because this work of making us holy is a product of all three members of the Trinity. We could say particularly that the Father arranged the redemption of his people, the Son accomplished the redemption of his people, and the Spirit applies redemption to God's people. And so as we continue and look at each of these three terms, we'll look at them all in this context of holiness and try to see a connection to those priestly holiness ceremonies we discussed in the introduction. So first, washing. Our text reads, but ye are washed. Washing in scripture is a picture of purification. It's a picture of cleansing, of purity, of the forgiveness of sins. God's word declares how Christ saved us by the washing of regeneration in Titus 3.5. He sanctified and cleansed us with the washing of water by the word in Ephesians 5.25, that he has washed us from our sins in his own blood in Revelation 1 verse 5. And this blood is one that washes the robes of the saints and makes them white in Revelation 7.14. Have you ever had that experience of where you just feel really dirty. I mean, like physically a mess. Uh, It's a terribly uncomfortable feeling. Um, I think back to times when I've been hiking, a long, hard day of backpacking, and you're covered in sweat, and you're in the mud, covered in mud. You've been walking through cobwebs. You've had sticky sap on you. And you finish the day of backpacking, arriving at your destination, and you just feel so dirty. And if you happen to be hiking in beautiful British Columbia, as I usually am, you will often come upon a beautiful alpine lake. And to jump in and just feel that cool water wash over you is such a phenomenal feeling. And if you're really lucky, you'll end up at a place that has a waterfall. And you can go and stand in the waterfall and feel the water wash over you, cleanse you from that work, that heat, that exhaustion of the day. And in the same way, This is how God washes us in Christ, this total cleansing, total purification, total renewal, that grace upon grace that washes over us, cleansing us from sin and iniquity. There's nothing like being born again, being washed in Christ's blood. But God is pure and we are naturally impure. And so just as those priests of old could not approach 
unto God lest they be wa- unless they were washed in physical water, so we can't come unto God unless we've been washed in the blood of Christ. And only then can we follow Hebrews 22 when it says that we can draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from our evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is what Christ's washing provides, freedom from guilt and shame from all the condemnation of the enemy. Indeed, it's freedom to approach the very throne of God. Let's rejoice in this glorious washing of Christ. Secondly, the text declares, but ye are sanctified. And the meaning of this term sanctified is that of being set apart, to be rendered holy. It's an idea of consecration. And we see this idea again in the tabernacle where items were set apart from ordinary use for holy use. That those utensils were no ordinary utensils, but now to be used in service to God. And again, we see this with the priests. After being washed, they were anointed with holy oil and set apart for ministry. And if you remember, this holy oil was of a particular recipe that no one else was allowed to wear. So the person that was anointed with this fragrance, if you were to be around them and smell it, you would know that they had been distinctly set apart to minister unto God. And the anointing oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And just like those priests, we too as believers have been set apart by the Spirit of God to minister unto God. This is spoken of in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, where we're told that God in Christ has anointed us and sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. We're set apart to minister unto God. For as 1 Peter 2 verse 5 says, we as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And what's our spiritual sacrifice? As Romans 12 1 says, it's our very lives. We're to be living sacrifice, living sacrifices in service to God. Lastly, we hear scriptures say, but ye are justified. That is, you are declared righteous, reckoned innocent, rendered holy. Um, It's akin to a legal declaration of freedom from the guilt and penalty of sin. And how? It's only through the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. Uh, Again, here, I think the picture of those priests is helpful. They couldn't approach unto the Lord in just their ordinary clothes, what they were wearing usually, but they had to approach in holy garments that, again, God directed them specifically to wear. Garments set apart to clothe them for ministry to the Lord. And in the same way, you and I cannot approach unto God in our own garments. Even our purest works, our best deeds cannot be fit clothing for us. God's word declares to us in Isaiah 64 verse 6 that we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousness that we would try to clothe ourselves with. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. Um, Picture a child, if you will, who might want to impress his friends with his looks. So he decides, what am I going to wear to impress my friends? And he has no clean clothes, so he goes to the dirty clothes hamper and figures one 
If one shirt is nice, surely two shirts is even nicer. So he decides, I'll just wear it all. Puts on dirty shirt after dirty shirt, dirty pair of pants after dirty pair of pants. Will that make him more impressive to those he's trying to impress? No, we know we just end up with a kid who's going to be smelly, lacking basic mobility. And we think that's silly, but we do the same thing all the time. When we think that our works will make us more impressive to God, we pile on righteous deed after righteous deed, think we can take off sin after sin, that we can present ourselves to God and that he will see us as holy. But do we really think that our good works of our own skill impress the Lord of glory? It's so, so, so foolish to think that God will grant us acceptance in his holy presence when we come with naught but our own dirty clothes. We need holy garments. We need a righteousness that comes from outside of us. And this is the beauty of the gospel. This is that great exchange we see in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where God makes Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is, Christ is the one who takes our filthy garments and gives us his royal robes. And when you know this glorious righteousness given by God, then you will declare in, with the prophet in Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me in the robe of righteousness. Dear unbeliever, don't be found naked at the day of judgment. Don't be found in your own righteousness, but be found in a robe given by Christ, a robe that's attained by faith and faith alone. And this is the good news of the gospel. It's justification, being counted righteous in God's sight by faith. So trust Christ's sin-bearing, sin-cleansing sacrifice. Put all your hope of holiness and salvation in him and him alone. And dear brothers who have trusted in Christ, rejoice in this glorious redemption. We who were once unholy have been made holy in Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's an unspeakable privilege, and one we're going to spend eternity plumbing the depths of. And so we, as believers, have been made holy. But what is this holiness for? How does this new holy redemption affect our lives? Well, our last point is really just a brief word of application. And in it, I want us to see that we've been made holy, not just to sit around in a holy huddle, but that we might be holy in all our conduct. We've been made holy to be holy. So what I would propose to you by means of application is that it's a mindfulness of our holy identity and redemption in Christ that motivates us and plays a pivotal role in our fight against sin and our endeavoring to godliness. Namely, it's our identity that motivates our activity. It is constantly remembering who we are in Christ that encourages us to forsake sin and live for the one who died and rose again. So not only is our faith built on these foundational truths of the gospel that we've discussed, but our faith is continually strengthened as our faith takes hold of these truths day by day. 
And we see this principle really clearly laid out for us in Romans chapter 6 as Paul is teaching this identity action idea in 6 verses 11 and 12. In Romans 6:11, Paul says that just as Christ died to sin and lives to God, so he now commands us, he says, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, reckon yourselves, that is, consider yourselves, think of yourselves in this way. It's from this faith-filled consideration of our holy identity that then Paul commands us in verse 12 to let not sin reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. This is the new principle. Reckon yourselves and then let not sin reign. This is the principle that we fight with, that our identity motivates our activity. And why is this relevant? Why is this helpful? I think this is helpful to us because we so often fight sin the wrong way. We fight by self-will, grit, determination. But that's not our fight. Our true fight is what the Bible says is the fight of faith. We need to increase our faith in the finished work of Christ for us and the continuing work of the Spirit in us. We need to meditate on these great divine realities that we've discussed, our washing, our sanctification, our justification. We need to constantly remind ourselves, as Peter says, constantly remind ourselves of these truths, daily, weekly, hourly. And this is not to neglect our faith-filled effort. It's not a let go and let God idea, but it's seeing the key role that faith plays in our sanctification, that we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, to consider, consider, consider. Believers, we have to consider ourselves as washed, cleansed and forgiven from all our sin by the Father, as sanctified, set apart unto God, anointed by his very Holy Spirit, as justified, accounted righteous before God, clothed in the holiness of Jesus. And when we see ourselves in this way, we're going to be so much less willing to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. We'll be so much more ready to resist its sinful lusts. Why? Because we can fight sin from a place of confidence in what Christ has done for us, in joy of the victory he's earned, and understanding this privileged position that we've been given all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. So how could we then come down to these lowly base sins that are so beneath our heavenly status, so beneath this new identity of being in Christ? We're called to imitate our Father, to be perfect as he is perfect, to be holy as he is holy, to be conformed to the image of Christ, our elder brother, So let's try to learn to constantly consider this work of redemption that we may be motivated for a holy mission. Remembering that we who were once unholy have been made holy in Christ by the Spirit that we might be holy in all our conduct. And so I just want to summarize and conclude by way of three brief considerations. First, to you who believe in Christ, consider your sin that you were once unholy, unworthy, and unfit for the kingdom of God. Consider your sin. Secondly, consider your redemption, that you have been made holy 
washed, sanctified, justified in the name of Christ by the Spirit of God. And consider your calling, that you have been called with a holy calling, that you might live a holy life, reflecting the holiness of your Father. And for you who have still yet to trust in Christ, these considerations apply to you, but in a different manner. To you who don't trust in Christ, you need to consider your sin, that you are still unholy, still unworthy, still unfit for the kingdom of God. And you need to consider Christ's redemption, that he has made a way for sinners like you to be reconciled to the Father. He's made a way for sinners to be washed, to be sanctified, to be justified and made right with God. And so then to consider your calling, the calling of God to you today is to repent from your sin and to place all your hope of salvation in Christ and Christ alone. The call is to repentance and faith, just as it is for us who believe, who are called to repent of our sin and trust in Christ daily. Brothers, let's praise the Lord that we have such a God who makes the unholy holy, who washes the unclean, who sanctifies the dishonorable and justifies the ungodly. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your goodness abounds towards us in so many beautiful aspects of your glorious salvation. Would these truths be imprinted on our hearts? Would they be brought frequently before our mind and eyes that we would learn to burn with love for Christ, that we would love knowing that you first loved us? Would we learn to plumb that de- the depths of your love to explore every day these beauties of this glorious redemption, that we may live holy lives as you call us to? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.